Well, good morning again, Rogers Park. I'm John McGill. I serve as the associate pastor here. Deli, Brock, Deacon teams, bless you guys. You guys are too kind. Thank you for your servant leadership. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. We continue here today, digging through 1 Corinthians. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for uh, the last few weeks or so. We've been through the first three chapters. This is one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Not the first letter, by the way. Uh, There was some letters before that, but this is the first letter in the Bible um, that was recorded as canon. Paul was an apostle. He was not one of Jesus' 12 original apostles. Rather, he became an apostle after Jesus was crucified on the cross and rose from the grave. Um, Paul, he had a major conversion experience as recorded in Acts. And actually, all of our conversion experiences, those are all major, but his happens to be recorded in the Bible here for us to learn and take from it. And instead of previously creating havoc... For the Christian community, God dramatically changed his heart. And he became one of the early church's most influential leaders and church planters. And the church in Corinth was one of the churches that he planted. So he was there for probably 18 months or so. And then he left to plant another church in another city. But over some time, as we've learned over the last few weeks, he began to receive reports He began to be disheartened by what he was hearing, and it was clear that the church was starting to become out of step with God's design. It was beginning to use the wisdom and values of the surrounding culture to determine uh, what was good, what success looked like, and this snowballed into disunity and division, and factions were forming, which further snowballed into a away from the centrality of the gospel message, the message that tells us that we have a God, a wonderful, loving God who acts to reconcile us back. But for the Corinthians, society was too compelling. The city was too compelling. The words of human wisdom were too compelling to the point where the Corinthian church was becoming spiritually immature. So Paul, out of a deep, deep love for the people of the church of Corinth, wrote this next letter to help them find some desperately needed correction. And in the weeks to come, we will be looking at issues and topics in need of attention. Many of them are touchy, including teaching on sexuality and marriage and divorce and various idolatries and other things, the conduct in and outside of the church. And some of these topics were very difficult for the Corinthians to tackle. And in our cultural moment today, these are, these can be difficult topics for us to tackle, especially when culture is saying that our ways are better than God's ways. Well, today in chapter 4, Paul concludes his first section of this letter, capping off his address of the disunity and source of it in order for the rest of his words, 12 chapters worth more, to be well-received. I'll cut to the chase and the point here. Paul, he was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. He cuts to the heart of the Corinthians with tact and brilliance. And we are going to learn some things, both through the way that Paul interacts with the Corinthians and the, contact that the, Holy, and the content that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. And we're going to look at four profound lessons in gospel-centered leadership. And so I 
So a question I want us to ask as we look through this chapter 4 in four sections is, what do we learn about faithful leadership in the church? And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read our first of four sections. Father God, Lord, we bless you. We thank you, Father, that we get to gather here to open up your word, to hear what it is that you want to say to us, Father. We pray, Father, as we navigate through these four sections divided of chapter 4, Lord, that we would take from these words what it is that you want us to take, that we would apply them to our lives, Father, that we would be more compelled by your character and love for us to give you all the glory and praise, that you would conform our, our lives more into the likeness of Jesus. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, at the end of chapter 3, Paul just mentioned his own name himself, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Those were leaders in the church, leaders over the overall church, the early church that the Corinthians were siding with and so forth. And so we pick up with verse 1, chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, the people he just mentioned, and other leaders, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against me. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The first lesson that we learn about faithful leaders in the church here is that faithful leaders in the church seek the approval of God. They seek the approval of God. Many of you know that I worked in the corporate sector for a number of years, and I worked directly for a number of CEOs. And about 10 years ago, I had this particular CEO. There were some other CEOs after that. Um, but this CEO, there was a certain way that he liked to lead. And one way that he liked to do that was to make fun of his employees in front of everyone in front of meetings. And, you know, there was a time when um, there was a meeting. I was not a part of this particular meeting, but one of my friends, after that meeting, he came into my office and he said, you know, the CEO, he just made so-and-so cry. This person that cried, he was a respected, grown man with grown children. That is how the CEO liked to lead. And I'll tell you what, jabbing someone where it hurts in the business setting not necessarily ineffective for business. This was not helpful for the church because people don't build God's church. God builds God's church. God, in his kindness and grace, simply raises up leaders. He empowers leaders. He uses people and sends them out to build his church. There are some really talented people in the world that can build multiple multinational corporations, most of them won't be empowered to build God's church simply because, first and foremost, they, are, they aren't seeing God's approval to do that. And plain and simply, if my old non-Christian, very 
incompetent CEO. When I say non-Christian, I mean in certain respects, we are not to judge him there. If he, on a whim, for who knows what reason, decided to lead a church using the business methods that he learned and solely those, that church would be a disaster. But church leaders are to be those who regard themselves as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. God, Mysteries of God meaning the message of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified on the cross. And leaders of the church are to be trustworthy. You know when you have a trustworthy, faithful leader in the church. You know it when you find out that he is not seeking out the approval of man, but rather he is seeking out the approval of God. And if we observe Paul's language in this first set of verses, he's basically saying, I don't care what you think of me. In fact, I don't even care what I think about myself. My job is to simply administer the word of God, and God will be my ultimate judge. And there is a profound lesson here, whether it's a local pastor, a local elder team, there are, they are all not to seek the approval of man, but rather to seek the approval of God. Doesn't mean that we as a church body don't encourage one another. Doesn't mean that we don't say way to go. Doesn't mean that we appreciate the eight-man standing ovation that the pastors got this morning. By the way, that was supposed to be a joke. Really appreciate the, uh, the applause. Sometimes these don't land. A lot of grace. (laughs) Just because your pastors might be seeking the approval of God first and foremost, more so, more than any other church member, more than any other person that walks through the door, it doesn't mean that pastors don't have a profound love for every single one of you that walks through this door. It doesn't mean that pastors won't visit you in the hospital at a heartbeat's notice. It doesn't mean that myself as a first-year pastor isn't laboring to earn your confidence and respect. It simply means, when it comes down to it, when it's time to be judged by the ultimate judge, will God say to his church leaders, you have stewarded, you have been faithful to my gospel message well. And so we, and all of us, cannot be clouded by everything that the world has to say about us that was happening, and that was happening in the church of Corinth. These are princi- there are principles here that are to be directly applied to all kinds of leaders in the church, and all of us, including aspiring leaders and those that labor and work and learn under leaders and those that evaluate leaders. Here's one example. Small group leaders. At the end of the day, when you labor to gather people in your homes, open up the word, facilitate tough discussions, facilitate prayer over the church, prayer over the community. At the end of the day, you are also accountable to God. At the end of the night, you come to God and you say, Lord, was this group session, was this faithful to the message of the cross? Now you'll tell me, Well, what happens when we just seek only the approval of our small group members and not God's? Well, a lot of things can happen. The small group can start looking like the world. For instance, what if all of our small groups were only comprised of 
the Instagram beautiful, the successful, the winners of this world, and the group turns into a social networking hour that, that everyone likes, well then what do we need a church small group for when we can find that kind of a group just about anywhere? Well, you'll say, John, well, the difference is that this group has the Bible. This group has God. And I'm telling you, the approval of man loves the successful and the beautiful, but hates the dirty and downtrodden. Whereas God, the approval of God, loves them all. By the way, I have visited a lot of your small groups lately, and this is an anomaly. Every single person in the group has been beautiful, so that's an exception to the teaching here. Good for us. Paul goes on, verses 6 through 7. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The second leadership lesson we, we observe here today is that faithful leaders in the church are to be humble. Are to be humble. We live in a world where Becoming puffed up is like second nature, where the world practically begs us to show off all of our gifts and talents. We want to be noticed. We want to show everyone how much we've accomplished. And there are many platforms that also want us to do that. But Paul asked the Corinthians three big, big questions here. The first question, for who sees anything different in you? In this world, where distinguishing oneself is the way to gain applause from the world, if everyone is trying to distinguish themselves, how does that ultimately make you different from anyone else? We live in a world where everyone is trying to distinguish themselves. Now, if we take a second look at this question here, who sees anything different in you? Who? There is a person that sees something different in you. God is the one that sees something different in you. He is the one who uniquely made you. He is the one who knows all of your distinguishing details better than anyone else. He is the one that will show you the most appreciation because he'll always care about you more than the world is ever capable of knowing you. So how do we distinguish ourselves with God at the center? Question two, what do you have that you did not receive? Plain and simply, all the gifts that we have, all the talents, all of our successes, all of our job titles, all of our possessions, all of our greatest accomplishments, they are all a gift received. Even the next breath that we take, that is a gift received. And Paul reminds the Corinthians to come back to this reality it all comes to us by grace, which brings us to Paul's obvious follow-up question here, the third question. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If everything you have is a gift, where is the basis to become puffed up? If everything you have is a gift, even your greatest accomplishments, that Olympic medal, that PhD, the million Twitter followers, those are not 
bad things in and of themselves. But what exactly are you boasting about if those are a gift received? Everything is a gift received. And you could retort, well, I put a lot of hard work into this. In fact, I worked harder than anyone else. And God will tell you, the energy, the stamina, the drive, your very life from the beginning, a gift received. Faithful leaders won't let this go unchecked. Faithful leaders will remind themselves where it all came from. Faithful leaders make sure any spotlight on them is directed back toward God. Nothing wrong with a million Twitter followers as long as your overall message at the end of the day points back to the Lord. But the church in Corinth had forgotten this, and Paul continues with verses 8 through 13. This is our third section here. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. He's talking to the Corinthians. Without us, you have become kings. And with that, you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And there's, in, this, in these verses, the third lesson we observe about faithful Christian leaders is that they have a lifestyle that is cross-centered. They are to have a lifestyle that is cross-centered. And in reading Paul's words here, we should immediately pick up on an interesting tone that Paul employs. There's a very, actually really neat illustration in these verses here, verse 9. Now, I just read that verse, but the NIV version gives a much more accurate rendition of it. It reads like this, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of a procession like those condemned to die in the arena. The Corinthians would have picked up on this illustration very easily. They would have seen it as a typical Roman legion returning from battle with the generals and commanders up front, next the hero soldiers, then the junior soldiers, then the supporting cast perhaps, and then the defeated prisoners, and then at the very end, the sickly defeated prisoners. And Paul is saying, those are like the apostles, the lowest of the low, the people that are destined to die in the arena, the people that are destined to be fed to the lions, to fight the gladiators. Corinthians, those are your apostles. All that is despised by the world. And see this, Paul uses a clear sarcasm here. It turns out sarcasm is okay in some use cases, especially when it's used to, to point out an absurdity. Paul tells them, already you are rich, you reign, you are wise, you are strong, you have honor. But compare that to the life of the apostles, the Pauls, the Apollos, the Cephases, the church leaders. 
The very people you wave your flag, the leaders of the church, see how your leaders live on earth, hungry, poorly dressed, homeless, cursed, persecuted, slandered. Paul makes the contrast in lifestyle even more stark, saying that they are the scum of the earth. All that is despised of the world, those are your apostles. That is the way of the cross. You see, the Corinthians acted as if they had already arrived and they were triumphal in posture. They took all the words and thoughts of their favorite preachers, their favorite leaders, and they applied them to themselves in a way that made them arrogant to the world. In ways that says to the world, I'm going to declare myself to be superior. I have Jesus' world, and you don't. Take that. In our society today, when we picture those that get a lot of camera time, those that get all the accolades, those that are venerated, we picture beautiful people that never wear the same outfit twice. We picture Fortune 10 CEOs. We picture people that fill arenas with all the the lights and the cheers to follow. But we forget that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, did not wear a flashy outfit and a crown of jewels. And he wasn't a large commercial landowner. And often at times he had nowhere to lay his head. The world does not aspire to that lifestyle. But hear this, we don't want to forget the glory we ultimately receive as followers of Christ. There is celebration there. And we, we gather here on Sundays to celebrate all that God is doing. But sometimes we can mistakenly hear that our benefit of the gospel message is that it affords me all the tools to win at life, to be better than everyone else. And furthermore, when the church adopts a culture that might not look and feel much different than the world, or it adopts a posture that says we are so great, well then it becomes very difficult to live a life embracing Christian lifestyle that is sacrificial and says this is who Jesus is. The real Christian leader has a lifestyle that's very counter to the world's. It's a lifestyle of cross-carrying. It's a lifestyle that says, it's a lifestyle that doesn't say how great we are. It is a lifestyle that says how great Jesus is. Because just like Jesus was willing to go through great lengths for us, we are willing to go through great lengths for him. When I see the Jasons, the Jamies, the Joes of the world, I see sacrifice. I see 6 a.m. meetings to get this church thing right. I see investment in people's lives at great cost of their time and comfort. I see those same things in our, in our deacons, the Brocks and Delis, the deacon teams. I see our, in our small group leaders, in, in our folks that serve at night church, in our children's ministry servers that come to church to serve, not to be served. And there are many, many other examples of sacrificial living here. Believe me, those are not lost. And so again, Paul found the Corinthians needing to get back to the way of the cross. And he says in this final section, verses 14 through 21, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. 
to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? In these final verses, the fourth lesson we learned about faithful Christian leaders is that their lives are to be worth imitating. Their lives are to be worth imitating. We take this chapter four, we find the ministry of Paul at its best. He is brilliant. He's firing in all four cylinders. We find him clearly stating who he and the apostles are ultimately accountable to and not accountable to. We find him asking the Corinthians piercing questions. Then he moves to show a stark contrast between their lives and the lives of the apostles. And now, in this fourth section of chapter four, he transitions to his messaging of a clear fatherly love toward them. Divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, the words here establish his authority so that he can press on with his letter. Paul has warnings for them because he loves them. He reminds the Corinthians that he was the founder of their church, hence the fatherly references, and because so, he has the authority and credibility to say, imitate me by the power of the Spirit. So let's just park there for a moment. This kind of language of asking the Corinthians to imitate me would have resonated a little differently to first century Corinthians than it would to us today, to our 21st century years. You see, if you were the son of a blacksmith, the son of a a baker, if you were the daughter of a clothing maker, the best thing for you to do would be to imitate your parent so that you could make a successful living. So in characterizing himself as a type of father, he was saying, you can trust my ways because I love you. Trust my ways. But if we're reading this with our individualistic 21st century ears, our egos, are we going to be able to take this kind of direction from Paul and are we going to be able to take it seriously and apply it to our own lives in some kind of way? Well, followers of Christ... They are people who turn away from themselves. They are the people that know that apart from the Lord, things go haywire. That apart from the Lord, destruction happens. And Paul, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me, and he attaches as I imitate Christ. We are blessed here at Park to have many members worth imitating Many leaders, I gladly imitate the other pastors and elders here at the Park Network, whether it's Jason Yeager's heart for the refugees or Joe Kim's heart for arriving at the, the, at the God-honoring decision or Jamie's heart for seeing people at an impressionable age come to know Jesus or seeing Jason's heart to see gospel-centered churches planted all across the city not to mention all their wives with very similar sentiments. There are many, many people worth imitating here at our church. We are blessed for that, and you are not forgotten. Paul wanted the Corinthians to imitate any aspect of his life insofar that they lined up with the gospel. And he'd also be the first to tell you that he's not always going to get it right. And Apollos, he's not always going to get it right. Safest, 
he's not always going to get it right. The pastors, elders, individually, they are not always going to get it right. The lay leaders, they will not always get it right. I will definitely not always get it right. But we as a church body, we are committed to pursuing someone who always gets it right. There is one who always gets it right, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who paid the price on the cross, the price that we deserve to pay. He is the one who suffered on the cross and bared more physical, more mental, more emotional pain than we can possibly imagine. He's the one that showed us the way of the cross so that we would not be snatched back by the world. Are all of us called to live like the apostles, like the local church leaders? <clears throat> well, some of us are called to be large business owners. God works through that. And we don't have to always avoid the nice outfit. But when we are feeling that nudge, when the Spirit is whispering to you, you're not supposed to go that route. This is the route of the cross. Are you going to be obedient to the Spirit's nudging? Are you willing to apply a gospel lens toward the way he's leading? What are those places in our lives where we need to be led by the cross. When the cross leads our lives, we are led to the place where real glory, real riches, real honor exist. And that place is with God. Let's pray. Father God, we submit to you. We thank you again for this time of opening up your word and seeing what it is that you had to say for us. Father, we pray that those words would dwell in our hearts richly. And Lord, this is your church. We submit it to you, Father. Lord, those places where we haven't been submitting to you, we've been seeking the approval of man in our own lives and not your approval, Father, we pray you'd have your way with us there. Because, Father, in your kindness and grace, you have involved us in your mission. No greater mission than the one that you have purposed, Father. You are a redemptive and a loving God. You sent your Son to lead us back to you. We give you all the glory and praise. Amen. Please stand.